Hi, I'm Lisa Simeone, and uh, it's my pleasure to talk to Yana Kopalentova-Rihak about this book. I don't know how many of you people have had a chance. I think some people in here have already read it, and um, for others it'll be something new. And uh, you can see what's up there. These were actually going to be my first two <laughs> points to talk about, but we can see the definition of the word mukul, which she'll talk about more because it means something very specific. Um, and this this conversation is going to be about the dissonance dissidents, excuse me, in this time period. So from the end of the world of World War II to the fall of the Berlin Wall, we will get into the difference between these dissidents and the people such as Václav Havel, with whom Americans are more familiar, because Jana had told me that this is a different situation, and these dissidents look at each other differently, even though they're all political dissidents. So we'll talk also about some of the specific people she interviewed for this book, and because it begins with a series of beautiful portraits that are very moving, and she can put some of those up as well. So I wonder if you could... Tell us the word mukul. It does say it, it, the definition was up there. These are, it, it's a very chilling definition. These are people who have been selected for liquidation. That's what it means technically, but they yes. still consider themselves mukuls and they still call themselves that today, right? Right. For them, good evening, everybody. Uh, for uh, I should say, group, subgroup of people that I worked with, recorded, and hoping to tell the story, um, this is a matter of identity. Uh, they were put through horrible ritual of silencing, liquidation, as the word in, says exactly. And so for them, this is a term that uh, interestingly defined their identity in terms of we are survivors. Uh, we were attempt to li- be liquidated, but we did survive. And so that's why it's so important. Muklinye means in Czech female of the Mukul. Um, and uh, so that's all I have to say in, in terms of actual word. But um, I would like to say a few words, if I may, in terms of history and historical context of this book. Um, I'm a different generation uh, than um, uh, people I worked with. Um, I returned to Prague from Baltimore in 1995 and uh, found myself thinking about our shared past as a a nation, country, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, then Czechoslovakia uh, in 1991 became a place of two different separate countries, Czech and Slovakia, and I was from Czech, so uh, people I worked with are mostly from Czech side. So I will be referring to Czech political prisoners. Uh, But coming back from Baltimore, having that distance for a year, I thought a lot about um, what happened in past, um, what was left uh, or what not, um, what was the political consciousness in 1994, 95, and uh, happened to um, meet this group of men who were meeting um, weekly, Sunday morning in Prague Cafe Ganis, and uh, and we started our discussions then uh, about their generation, about their experiences. It turned out that they shared this dark history, uh, time in communist concentration prisons and work camps um, that were set up to a destroyed, liquidate 
so to speak, uh, a generation of men and women that opposed the communist regime in 1948. Um, and uh, they formed very strong friendships. And so every Sunday during the year, they would meet and, uh, and be together. And uh, they agreed to, for me to photograph them, to um, interview them. And that's how projects started. But it was a, it was a very much the record of what happened to them in past, how their memory takes them back to past, but also my, my generation's, in a way, facing past. So this would be technically your grandparents' generation. Is yes. that what we're talking about? Yes. And some of these people were actually imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II. So they went from one horrible right. prisoner situation to another one right. when they came back to their own country. Right. One of the uh, things that I, I argue with my, in my book is that there was a certain continuity, historical continuity. Um, there are historians in Central Eastern Europe who disagree with this and uh, would argue that, oh, you voted for the Communist Party and it's, you sort of selected that road, but many have argued, and Mukles are one of them, that after liberation from Nazi occupation, um, Soviet army, state, really, and, uh, and established power in, in our country. And the Sovietization, as we would say, is one of the political, um, ideological problems for this generation. They felt very strongly we fought Nazis, and, uh, and uh, so we're not going to easily give up uh, our country to Soviets now. So on some level, we are this small country in Central Europe squashed between superpowers like Soviets and Germans. And the generation of these men and women had very strong feelings about this. You talk, uh, you devote separate chapters in your book to three different phases uh, in, the, in these prisoners' lives, when they are actually captured, when they're imprisoned or detained, when they're interrogated, and then their trial. Very specific, three different specific actions. Let's start with when they're actually taken and when they're detained. So this, this structure of first part of the book came out of... Uh, individual life history narratives. Uh, I'm a cultural anthropologist by training, and uh, so I begin my field work and my, uh, my interviews uh, through life history narratives. And after analyzing and comparing and looking for uh, speech voice patterns, you may, um, I begin to notice repetitions that occur in a different people's narratives. And I notice that there, there are certain um, important events or ruptures in their histories, personal histories. And arrest was one of them. All of them talked about interrogations and then trial. Um, and so I decided that I will take that as a structure, first, first part of the book, and, uh, and stay with that as chapters. Uh, arrest uh, was a moment uh, for many of them, it seemed to me, um, almost visual, graphical, in a way they remember details. They remember very clearly last words to their relatives, face, uh, moments that... When I visited them in their homes, for example, in 95, 96, 97, they would say, look down, that's where they were taking me in handcuffs, and until now I see my mother's face on the balcony saying goodbye. And I realized that they lived 
with this memory, even after prison, throughout their life. And so I begin to explore this understanding of memory constituted in present in a way, and uh, how they, even though they were freed in the 60s, they uh, had to live with that trauma for the rest of their life in a way. And there was a, just a different form of prison. They remembered... You, you described this one, uh, one case of someone saying, looking down from a balcony and saying, I remember my mother's face, or I might remember the washing hanging on the line. Very ordinary, everyday things right. became seared into their minds. So I was challenged with um, uh, one methodological, I guess, question. Uh, this particular historical period has been described by historians, uh, political scientists, but when I begin a project as a cultural anthropologist, the question was, um, what do I bring into this as an anthropologist? And uh, one of the things we do in, in cultural anthropology, ethnography, we pay attention to rituals and events, but we also pay attention to ordinary, everyday experiences. And so there was a big question of these people experienced terrible violence. They experienced 10, 15 years of imprisonment. Uh, social suffering was a tragic condition of their life. But I wanted to tell their story through ordinary, through that concept of ordinary. Um, what was life like for them specifically, day to day, while they were arrested in prisons, in camps, afterwards? Um, I noticed that the, the relationships that they formed, whether in prison or with their relatives, were incredibly powerful, more so than I have seen in Czech society in general. I begin to write about this concept of relatedness, how people relate. So throughout the arrest, people talked about interruption, or interruption in their family lives, kinship ties, for example. Anthropologists traditionally look at kinship. So I said to myself, how do I look at a kinship under this violence? And so there was a reference to what happened. I was denied of parenting. I was derived of fatherhood. A lot of male prisoners were arrested at a time uh, when their wives were pregnant, for example, and they were not allowed to see their children until their children were age of seven or so. That, so they would say, I, uh, the biggest crime for me was that I was uh, deprived of being father. Uh, or uh, women uh, who were younger typically couldn't have children afterwards. If they had children, it was terribly painful when they were interrogated. Often they were uh, blacked male, um, and they were threatened through their children's lives. So this, this concept of what, how regime used kinship ties to torture people, to interrogate, to, um, to hurt, to make them suffer. Um, and uh, then what happened um, when people returned? Many of them talked about how even though husband and wife, maybe both of them in prison when they returned back, even though they had this shared experience, they, they fell apart. Their marriage did not survive. If they were looking for a partner at that point, they only looked for other political prisoner. So there was a sense of alienation from rest, from their own kin. Um, and uh, so I pay attention to what happened among themselves within the prisons, but also with people that were left outside. And uh, when I was writing about kinship and kinship under violence, uh, I realized that uh, when 
Mughals referred to themselves as a community, they wouldn't use the word community in Czech language, but they would use our family, Mughals' family. And so I begin to, to write about this sort of alternative understanding of kinship that was formed in prison. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this whole Kafka-esque situation where they're arrested because it should, I think it will, and it should remind people of what's going on in this country, what we've done since 9-11. This, this, uh, you're arrested, you don't know what the charges are, uh, your family members don't know where you've been taken, you, then there's a interrogation, which really means torture, then there's a show trial, it's just, it's just a sham. I mean, all of this is going on, and it's this whole Kafka, people, they, they can't, not only are they, do they have violence done to them, but they can't even make sense of what's going on because they don't know. They're deliberately kept in the dark. So this concept of secrecy has been really built into, uh, into the power. You know from your own experience that even this government has its secrets. And so, yes, there was a secrecy in terms of uh, uh, maybe ambiguity, unpredictability. I always think of the example of Arthur London, who was a pre-war European communist, um, who was among first ten arrested First uh, 10 arrested uh, men, I should say, were communists themselves, actually. Uh, men who were seen dangerous to their own party. And Arthur London was one of them. Uh, he wrote a book that has been translated to English where he described first three months of arrest. And uh, it's very psychological. These three months, he's left uh, in the dark uh, cell solitude by himself interrogated and he's constantly guided with this concept of how they can do this to me uh, this sort of notion of I'm not sure what's happening very much what Kafka is like uh, people didn't know when they would be arrested if they were in resistance active resistance they know it may happen but they didn't know when it could have happened any time of day um, night um, and so that was surrounded by secrecy then there were interrogations that were again surrounded by people were taken in camps into interrogations and other prisoners didn't know whether that person was talking, collaborating or not. So that was another form of secrecy. Um, in anthropology, we like to talk about witchcraft. So it had a character of witchcraft in the sense that there's a, this was a power uh, built into system itself that produced fear and, uh, and reproduced fear in a way. Do we have a picture up? Could we put it? Could we yes, see some? Maybe. maybe you can talk about um, somebody in particular to give a human face to this. Okay, so this is the man who's on the cover of your book. Is this? I yes. can't remember. Is this Chenek or is this not? No, this is this, this is Franta, Franta. and uh, Franta was very special to my heart. Franta uh, died two years ago. Uh, he was in his nineties, and uh, he was the last from all people I have interviewed that I stayed in touch. We became close friends. And he became sort of my guardian in the second part of the book that uh, is more about reconciliation rather than remembering. So we mentioned this idea of three stages as of going through this violent ritual arrest interrogation trial. In a second part of the book, um, I was challenged uh, to address what are their politics today, how they live today. And I begin to talk about them as a family, 
community, that does certain things. One of them was to go to these uh, disappeared camps, memorial sites, organizing meetings, uh, being friends to each other. And Franta was someone who, any time I would return, all my field works was somehow in touch, was with me, uh, maybe adopted me as his daughter on some level, so we had a close bond. Ironically, Franta was also someone who, when he was in a camp, uh, this was in uh, uranium mines, he was depicted by uh, guards' leadership to be one of the uh, sort of organizers or someone who's in charge of other prisoners. So he was in a very peculiar position. He was in a position where he could protect people, uh, but he could also be accused that he may be collaborant. He was called to interrogations, um, and that's exactly the moment where uh, he and his friends were um, absolutely sure of the relationships they had. But in um, 1989, when communist regime fell, um, reconciliation process started, um, archived, STB, secret police archives opened, um, everybody could go in and look into their files. And there were a number of Mughals who went to their file and discovered that they were um, registered as informants. There were certain deg different degrees of collaboration. And uh, some of the men and women who were in prisons were also registered as informants. And uh, what that meant was that they were not allowed to become members, official members of Mughal's political party, um, and they were rejected from their own group, which seems is the most cruel, in a way, legacy of the regime. And so even after liberation from the regime, after Velvet Revolution, after communist regime fell, someone like Franta uh, was excluded not from his group of friends, closest ones that would meet in the cafe that I met them on a Sunday, but from the big general organization. Um, and uh, so I remember often Franta would uh, try to bring the points to show me that he was not collaborant. That it was underneath, and we established friendship and strong bond, and that did not... In the end, that was an important, uh, but I could see, especially after I read him my text, in the end, I would return and I will read what I wrote, and he would often talk more. Um, he, some silence broke through and he would comment. Um, this, this seems to me that one of the most cruel and brutal and well-studied things that the state can do to destroy people is to plant this seed in other people's minds that you're a collaborator, which is after all the hell you've already gone through, first of all, anybody will say anything under torture, all of us, anybody can be broken. People who've studied torture know this. There's no such thing as collaborating. You will do what you have to do to make that pain stop. And so to, to then use that against someone and to put in their permanent file that they were an informant or a collaborator after they've been so horribly abused means that legacy stays with them potentially for the rest of their lives. So they never can... It, they can never escape that. It strikes me as a particularly cruel legacy that, that states um, leave for their victims. And not just for their generation. Uh, for them, often, uh, 
there is a certain double life. Life seems black and white. You are either with us or against us. You are either with communist regime or you are prisoner. That was a legacy of 1948 to 60s, really. And uh, uh, But then they returned back in the 60s and had to negotiate their ordinary lives. They had to negotiate all of a sudden survival, not just for them, but their children. And for some of their children that I have interviewed, uh, this would be the same. I interviewed the daughter of a political prisoner and she said, in 89, my father was already dead, but we still went to archive and we looked his files up and yes, he was registered as informant. Uh, but we have no way to prove he was gone. Um, I, uh, this is horrible feeling for me. I lived all my life with notion that my father is a political prisoner, um, and uh, which meant a certain maybe political purity, if you wish. And now I have to live with this feeling that he, I don't know. Um, and so, as a daughter, she had a second guess. She doubted. Um, and she was my age, so she still have a long way to go. Um, and, and many of them felt that way, the children I interviewed, that if it wasn't clear, it was horrible, not just for their parents, but for them as well. And, and you mentioned the 60s. We should just say that there was, right. obviously, the Berlin Wall hadn't fallen yet. I mean, it was going to take until 1989, but there was a, a loosening up in the 60s, right. and so the, the camps were cleared out. Is that right? Camps were closed in um, mid um, well, uranium camps, uranium mines. So people were taken to work labor camps, to uranium mines, coal mines for males. For females, it were these were textile factories, agriculture. Uh, uranium mines were closed in the mid fifties. Uh, people were let go in mid sixties. Um, in the early 60s, the regime began to crumble. There were some economic crises. The regime exhausted um, economic resources. A uh, number of major political leaders died at that point, and with the new presidents, there were certain amnesties. So some people returned from uh, labor camps in early 60s. The people who were in heavy prisons stay until mid-60s. Uh, when they were returning, uh, they were coming to a very different kind of place than they left in 50s. Living in isolation, uh, they lost the sense of what was going on out there. And what was going on in Czech at that time, Czechoslovakia, I should say, like anywhere in the world, there was a certain sense of liberation movement, freedom. Czech people, Czechoslovak people could travel in the 60s uh, to West. Uh, there were certain books published, uh, music. There was a, a freedom. Uh, it was still communism. Uh, some of you may know this underterm communism with human face, or Alexander Dubček, for example, was one of the leaders at that time. Uh, there was a new generation of communist leaders who aimed for reform. They were aware that the country cannot go anymore in the kind of Stalinist communist regime direction, and that they have to reform communist party, they have to reform uh, what was going on in country politically. Uh, they did it still under supervision of Soviet political power. Um, Soviets basically came in 1948, Red Army liberated Czechoslovakia and never left. Um, Prague Spring, 1968, uh, when 
Allen Ginsberg came and many others, uh, was a very important historical moment, um, only to predate 1968 August, 19 August, uh, Russian army came and officially occupied. Um, it was official armed force occupation um, that began a different kind of period, period that we call normalization. Um, has been described by many dissidents, Václav Havel and many others addressed normalization. 70s and 80s was my time. That was I was born in 68, uh, spring 68. And so 70s and 80s was a time I grew up. And uh, many who addressed violence uh, distinct between different forms of violence. And so if uh, 50s, one could say, was a very radical form of violence where people were... Um, liquidated, people were imprisoned, people were aimed to be killed, disappeared, uh, this sort of social invisibility. 70s and 80s was uh, a grayness, was as if you take a knife and slowly sliced into, it was a, a different kind of era. Political prisoners from 50s often joked uh, or critiqued dissidents that were arrested in 70s and 80s, joked about these prison, prisons in 70s and 80s were luxury times where they could actually get cigarette and write. They, but I think the major difference was that there was a connectedness to the rest of the world, that um, Havel and his generation was connected to West. There was a certain sense of control or connection. Um, it wasn't that complete invisibility, complete darkness that people in 50s experienced. And what were the relationships like between those new dis newer dissidents and the Mughals? There were tensions. There were tensions. Um, uh, I remember very clearly often when participating in the meetings and uh, uh, Mughals discussing contemporary politics because they were very political and uh, very involved, they often critiqued for uh, post-Velvet Revolution a government being too liberal. They were really hoping for Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials. They were really hoping for trials that, were, that would uh, um, put a face back to their restore their pride to really clearly identified crime that happened during the communism. There were trials. They were compensated by government. But trial seems to not satisfy. Very often these trials uh, were led by younger um, judicial system, system that was established during the communism. Uh, different trials were dragged out. Uh, People put on trial died or got sick or were uh, liberated by not being able to participate. So it didn't really go anywhere for Mughals. So this brings up a very important point, which is reconciliation. Americans will be familiar with the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission in South Africa after apartheid. So, and we only have, if we haven't lived through it, we only have a kind of vague idea of what was involved in that. Um, what is involved in reconciliation? What was involved in reconciliation for the Mughals, and why was it so difficult? Why is it still so difficult? Process started in that uh, period of sixties. Some of the Mughals begin process of reconciliation uh, by opening archives. Then that was interrupted by 
68. Um, and so in a way they pick up in 89 and, and wanted to really uh, take some of the worst cases into the court. So let's say guard who shot someone when he was running away from was taken to the court. And, and so there were instances or um, uh, certain judges that were, let's say, uh, present in these so-called monster trials. A monster trial was a common term for group trial in 1950s, uh, where in the courtroom, uh, 30, 40 people uh, would be trialed in the same time after m months of interrogation. And uh, so some of the judges were called into courtroom. What was ironic, I think, for this concept of reconciliation, Mukul's really desire to bring everything back to courtroom. Courtroom was a space where uh, they were publicly, in a way, shamed. Uh, they were publicly excluded from their citizenship, and yet they so cared, many of them, till the end of their lives, that reconciliation to happen through legal system. But legal system was lame. Legal system was a legal system that was left over from normalization. People who were trained by communist regime, people who could only be lawyers and judges because they were in a party. And so, but in the same time, to dismiss for government, post revolutionary government, to dismiss legal system was impossible. And so this was a tension. Political prisoners wanted the government take radical stance to, to dismiss, to let people go, to really punish in a way. Uh, but the uh, dissident government, as we call it, post-revolutionary government, uh, didn't do that, wouldn't do that for practical reasons, as they argued. Uh, there's still ongoing debate until today whether the radical, more radical road would have been helpful for country in terms of contemporary corruption and involvement of various communist leaders in now not politics but economic power. Reconciliation would also seem to me to include someone standing up, the government today standing up and saying to the citizens of the country, this happened to these people, this was wrong, we owe them, we, owe, we just owe them recognition of what they went through and we have to acknowledge that. Did they ever get that kind of official acknowledgement? Some through the media in the every year, end of May, June, was uh, a time when they remember uh, there, some of the executions happened in that time. Visits to formal camps and memorials happened in that time. And during these times, there would be um, a, there would be often public speech. There would media would project this. There would be sort of national memoration to that. So yes, to some level, but not to their satisfaction. So it would really take. Um, it sounds like to for them to really feel satisfied, they would have to ha see a trial with due process yes. and with yes. prosecution and... Measure of the pain for them was often extracted from or compared to uh, Nazi uh, system. And so they would often say throughout their conversation, uh, communist regime in Czechoslovakia was equal to Nazi regime during the Second World War. So there was a sense of measuring pain, again, storing compared to Nazism. And so for them, 
in terms of reconciliation, again, Nuremberg would be a kind of uh, right way to do it, I think. And, and I just want to get this clear, that the reason that it was claimed to be impractical was because of the leftover legal system from the communist regime, right? right. right. Okay, so, all right. Um, do we have another picture of some... Oh, we, yeah. we do have another picture. Whoever you want to talk about who, again, to give us... But yeah, but oh, oh great! We'll oh, get good. To specific. This uh, this man, um, Wojta, uh, Wojta had a um, very tragic story. Wojta was uh, from twins. Uh, Wojta did work um, as a as a spy for West. Um, his brother, however, was a spy for East. Um, and uh, when Wojta was um, arrested and put in a jail, other prisoners did not believe that he was, uh, A, they mixed him for his brother, but also they they thought he was a spy for Russians. So throughout his prison time, uh, and that was over 10 years, uh, he suffered terribly because he was marked as a collaborant. Uh, It wasn't until 60s that he was able to prove that he was not. Um, And uh, I remember when I met Wojta first, several times, he had it's very important to him to go over and over the story. Um, he was also one of the men who, in end of his life, was like, extremely involved in serving uh, Mukul's community. Uh, I mentioned they formed strong friendships, and Wojta uh, was one of the men who would uh, make sure that, for example, people who suffer various health conditions, health issues, uh, formed various initiatives that would support um, proper care and so on. So he was really caring and and strongly involved. And I think he had that need still to prove all the way to the end that he was one of them. Um, Are any of the Mughals still alive? Wojta is. So he is last. The rest from all the people I have photographed uh, and met and interviewed um, are gone. Yes. And, and in general, in the, in the population at large in the Czech Republic, how many? Especially not, must last not be... five years, they they're all gone. Yeah, yeah. Yes. When you were talking to them, um, was there anything? Were, were, was it going through your mind the similarities to what's going on in this country post nine eleven? Or shall we talk about any of those similarities now? Maybe a question of um, existence of political prisoners, I guess, question of resistance, um, kind of anti-establishment movement, perhaps. Um, I um, always like to refer to a scholar uh, that I met a number of years ago, Tariq Ali, who came to Baltimore, who wrote a, a book, Clash of Fundamentalisms. And uh, he wrote about the similarity between extreme uh, politics in the West and, uh, and, let's say, Middle East. And uh, uh, he, one of the memorable things for me from his presentation at Hopkins a couple of years ago was that uh, there is a certain missing of uh, political underground or political resistance, I guess. And that may be something we can open 
for discussion. Um, I have been missing that myself, but uh, I also know that there are people who are involved in uh, various social movements. Uh, as we speak now today, a number of my friends are in D.C. Uh, demonstrating for changing of policies, for example, around immigration. One of my friends said, I don't know if I'll make it, I may be arrested. So she may be a political prisoner. Uh, Leonard Pertier, for example, Native American uh, leader and, and the spiritual and political leader has been political prisoner for um, more than half of his life. So on that level, um, there are similarities, perhaps. Just because I think it's too easy for us um, to just look at a book like this and say, oh, that's those other people with a capital O, other. And this happened to them in that time, in that country, far, far away. In, and, it, you know, there are no similarities because our country's not like that. When, in fact, we're, um, we have show trials. We have Guantanamo, which is a concentration camp. Right. We are entrapping people um, and calling them terrorists, even if they haven't done anything that, that, that qualifies as terrorism. So I, at least I see similarities. I guess political consciousness comes to mind uh, when talking to political prisoners for their generation, things, th th things seem to be clear. Uh, we just saw it. We couldn't give up. It was something that was very clear. I think that for me, difference is that in United States, there is even more secrecy, maybe. It's maybe less so clear. Maybe it's hidden behind the economics on some level. When you think about... Uh, uh, you know, who's leading, for example, Soviet Union now, uh, they don't have a certain political name, but we know that uh, the oil companies are two leading, that Putin is con connected to two uh, leading oil companies. We have heard certainly often that connection here where politics are closely linked into interest in oil, for example. So uh, on that level, we may not see particular ideology, political ideology, but there are other ideologies that are, I think, in a place. Um, do we, would you say, is it fair to say that the Mukuls, the ones you met, have, that the ones you met, have any of them, um, were, were any of them able to regain a sense of happiness in their lives? Well, there, there are interesting times that I had with Mukuls within their community. I, I do like to, in my book, return back over and over to this switching that they do, almost uh, kind of a code switching, we would say, from remembering these tragic moments to joking. And, and joking, not just among themselves, telling jokes, but remember certain horrible, tragic things uh, in a kind of a joking way. Um, also, how they joked in the camps. Those are all sort of survival mechanisms that they developed and in the camps, but also afterwards, throughout their life. So this, this back and forth between sort of tragic and comic um, I think it's, for me, very much characteristic of who they are, how they communicate. Um, and what maybe I also see as a distinction from other Czechs in relation to that strong camaraderie, bond. And, and okay, why, why in distinction to other Czechs? Why? What's different? Um, well, in Czech, like anywhere else, I think uh, aging people are often lonely. Uh, aging... Uh, on the periphery, on the side, can be terribly, I think, isolating from the rest of the society, maybe in this country more than anywhere else. Um, 
And in Czech it is, but the Mughals have each other and they make strong point to connect. And uh, I often remember being among them, feeling the joy of being together, thinking nobody else in this country has that. They do, um, which I think if there is a hope, to me it was in that sort of tragic and yet um, strong relatedness that they formed among themselves. Have, have they read the book? The people who were still around when the book... When did the book come out? When was the date? The book came out in December uh, 2013. So, no, uh, mm. I did manage to send the book to some of the children. And I, I did make a strong point in my last visit. During my last visits, before the book was published, I would regularly translate from the book. Uh, many of them cannot, most of them cannot read in English. Um, so I had to translate, and I would of often translate parts, um, and then they would talk. That was actually very productive. I realized that even some of them who were very close and couldn't really talk about certain experiences, after I read text to them, they would tell me things that they would never otherwise, um, which was very interesting for me and very interactive and, and productive, I think, in that sense of telling story later. Um, but now, sadly, uh, that's the sadness that I, I think I have that I cannot share. Franta, the man on the cover, was waiting. He was waiting for the book, and I didn't make it. Um, I was writing. I had already contract with publisher. I was writing, but um, didn't make it. So. Would you like to read a passage for us? I would, uh, actually. Um, and uh, maybe I'll write, uh, read about last, uh, very last visit um, to Chenyek. So very last chapter um, in the book, um, to me, was um, maybe one possibility of talking about hope. I, when I finished this uh, for, when I finished this book in terms of first draft, um, I so desperately wanted this story to have future hope. Um, and uh, after it was finished, I would still go and visit and spend time. And this was at the end of their, many of their lives. And many of them were disappointed uh, that there were no sort of real reconciliations for them. And uh, I felt it would not be honest to end on um, some future hope uh, in a sense of... I wish at that point I was an anthropologist, but... Um, I was a fiction writer, and I can leave it open-ended. But so I decided to to uh, resolve that in that I wrote this detailed description of our last visit in a hospital, that may be from all book the least academic and more of a storytelling has storytelling flow. I think I also became a better writer in the end. Um, and uh, so for me, in that. In this last chapter, there's maybe a sense of hope that I wanted to give as much I could um, as a social scientist. Last visit. A Mukul's moment of mourning, awakening, may be marked by nightmares from the previous night. For many individual Mukul's, their own everyday reconciliation begins with facing mourning in the absence of community of others with the same or similar experiences, these awakenings often reinforce their sense of isolation. Their ordinary lives, day-to-day -day conditions, are mar marked 
by witnessing or experiencing health problems, serious illness, aging, and death. Today, Mughals are part of the oldest generation living in Czech Republic. It was my last Sunday in Ganes in the summer of, the summer 19, of 2005 when I was with a small group of Mughals, Franta, Roman, and Vojta, the last of the survivors. At the noon, all the church bells in the Prague Center rang out. I spent our conversation listening to their memories, and after that, we decided to go visit Chenyek. Chenyek now lives in the hospital. His friends know he's dying. After Mukul's meeting in cafe, we all went. On the, day to the, on the way to the hospital, they joked, Vojta, I will go into his room first. You wait downstairs. I will tell him that he got the death sentence and the police are here. We will surprise him. Franta, you will see he lost a lot of weight, but he still enjoys his bourbon and cigarette. Vojta, I visit him regularly and bring him his little medicine, which is his last pleasure. His body is giving up on him. He was the one who composed our Mukul's hymn. Do you know it? The Mukul's are singing their hymn, a song composed by Chenyek in the prison. Their voice filled the interior of the car with a melody symbolic of Mukulhood. I'm absorbing the song but also still thinking about their way of joking. Mukul's joking is surprising. It is a sudden language switch, just like the conversation in the car. Vojta's plan to joke with the Chenyek is a performative reenactment of Chenyek's sentence. Forty years ago, Chenyek was sentenced to death by the communist government. His punishment was changed to life in the prison, and he survived. Now his friends, Mukos, who care for him, remind him through language play of this closeness to death in the past. We approach the hospital parking lot. Motol Hospital is a modern hospital built on the outskirts of Prague. Numerous high rises are spread over expensive hospital grounds, connected by asphalt roads. The whole place evoked the sense of a satellite city, expanding outward from Prague's center city neighborhoods. Wojta and I entered the hospital and walked towards Chenyek's room. There was no security guard to stop us. We could freely walk into this building and continue through hallways until we found Chenyek's room. The interiors, typical of modern hospital architecture in Czech Republic, hallways, and rooms have a low ceilings and large windows and are generally not spacious. Patients always have to share a room with other patients. Small rooms and hallways in Czech hospitals are often overheated when compared to American hospitals that seems to me always overly air-conditioned. Chenyek is in intense care in the room he shares with several older men. Chenyek in his nightgown, sits on a chair with a small desk attached. When we entered, he was finishing his lunch. Wojta offered to help him get dressed and then take him out to the front of the hospital where we could sit on the bench and talk. 
As we waited for him, I thought about life in the old age and how quickly a human body can change in a year. Last year, Chenik and I had got to art exhibitions. We walked through the center of Prague, drank wine and talked about art, a life interest he never lost. Now I'm in the hospital parking lot, waiting for him to come out. Chenik, wrapped, wrapped in the rope, sat on the wheelchair, pushed by his friend Wojta. The Chenik I know is an intellectual, a poet, and a lover of art. Our conversation have always been interwoven with his slightly cynical sense of humor. It was a kind of humor that he shared with many mukos, full of irony, even harshness, but never bitter. Chenik's body was trapped in a wheelchair, the body that was once under arrest, tortured, isolated, intended to be liquidated, but that survived, is now imprisoned, once again, but by his own diminished vitality. Wojta poured him a small shadow of bourbon and lit his cigarette. He served him with kindness and tenderness. Chenyek's face was transformed the moment he inhaled his cigarette and began the conversation. I read in his face his continuing ability to focus his mind, his strength to express through thoughts and ideas, reflecting both the past and the present. It was as if though his mind could never rest from Mukulhut. I wonder if we could take some questions from the audience, because people always have questions, things that I don't think to ask. Yes, sir. I think that mic is on. You can just, if you could use that mic, that'd be great. Think it necessary to take these people to trial. They, they had so much power, they could arrest them and just keep them in prison. And many, many... What, have, what did they get out of the trial? Right. What did the regime get out of the trial? Many have been sentenced to work labor camp directly. Um, trials were um, theatrical performances. You could... Uh, Certain people uh, in factories, for example, workmen, young students, were allowed to buy tickets to come and observe. So there was a certain reenactment of power. Um, also, these trials were often um, uh, announced. There was a loudspeaker in every village, town, on the squares, and these trials were, um, as they were happening, uh, were going out through that. So uh, there was a definitely uh, a power structure in a place. It was a show. It was a show trial. It was to show that uh, we have a power. It was to produce fear for the rest of the country. That was the aim. Um, also in a first stage, uh, first number of politicians that were opposed to Communist Party arrested executed. One of them was Milada Horákova, a lawyer, politician, who um, very openly stood up. So there were executions in the beginning. But again, these were to show off, to spread a fear. Um, and the, many have argued that the, they choose the woman as one of the first people that were executed to show we're so powerful, nothing will stop us, we will. And in Czech society, um, uh, I think very sort of uh, male-dominated society, this was a big step to execute women politician. 
Um, so they were very much a show trials, theater performances for rest of the country. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, a couple of times, I think I remember you mentioned Langer's notion that uh, specifically with Holocaust survivors, individual experiences shouldn't be swept up in a general or kind of tossed aside in a general sense or collective memory of suffering. Could you talk a little bit more about how that um, kind of impacted how you approached your interviewees? Right. This is, this is the reason I, I choose life history narratives in a sense, and I begin with that methodology as a possibility to see in the great detail uh, nuances and differences for, uh, for individuals, and also why I decided to present this story with photographs to, to give a face to particular people, uh, to say that you know, there were not just these numbers of suffering, but their particular faces, it's particular generation, and with particular stories. And so I think I'm, in my book, I try very hard to, uh, even though I'm introduced with the big generalizations, I try to go into details of individual life histories, or use these as a sort of argument to show. Who else? Somebody must have a question. Yes, yes, do please use the mic because it makes it easier. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, as an engineer by trade and studying a bit of anthropology and, and an activist, Occupy and, and <clears throat> Anonymous and, and whatnot, just the general rap browser and somebody that the federal government does not like whatsoever, um, I can tell you that, you know, what I listened to you talk about your book, it was moving because um, I can relate to all that right here in the United States of America, and I'm sure that. Uh, there's a lot of Americans who have absolutely no idea the kind of evil things that are going on in this country um, behind the, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal, which is all lies, and the CNN, which is all lies, and uh, Fox News, which is all lies, and the fact that, uh, you know, the uh, CIA created Al-Qaeda in the late 80s, and, and uh, the CIA blew up the World Trade Center, and uh, our guys are in Afghanistan fighting the CIA, uh, and it's, uh, and of course you've got Putin. Uh, with the whole Stalin and communism in in, in America, and uh, Angela Merkel with the Golden Dawn and the Nazi Party uh, in Greece, which has never been done before by the Nazi Party, uh, and also in America. And uh, I think that uh, there's a large majority of people who are outside the movement who uh, have absolutely no idea what truly is going on and what kind of evil things are taking place in America with the FEMA camps and and, what do you, uh, what do you think, um, what does that make you, when, when Yana was speaking, what kind of questions came up in your mind as you were relating all these things? Well, what I just wanted to say was that you were speaking about, you don't know how you could relate that stuff to, to in America, I think you were, but I could tell her that I can relate to everything that's going on in, in those times today in America, and I just, it's just, it was, it was just, it's moving, because um, this, this communist, uh, you know, these well, it's it's the totalitarian regime in a way. This the, we could think about the superpower that way. Um, you know, irony in what our dialogue may bring is that um, what kept us going. What most of the prisoners will tell you: Why did we stay in it? How did we stay so strong? They would say because we thought it will end any minute, any day. They really had that hope that someone from outside will come and end it, that uh, it can, as they call, crush any minute. Um, and there was that thought of somewhere else, it's better, different, that 
American dream thing. So there is dream somewhere that allows us to be strong and survive what we're going through. And for me, as a as an immigrant in a way, as a newcomer, uh, longer I live here, more um, resemblances I see, including you know sounds. The, this, so there there are all kinds of sensations that one may remember from that time that one may have here, the political ideas, the power uh, of the government, and so on. Yes, well, you know, corruption and abuse of power, and, and the, the word when you said reparations, I mean, that I hear, I hear that. And that's, there are a lot of political prisoners in this country, and I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people aren't even aware yes, of there that are. situation. There are. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you. Who else has a question for Yana about her book? Oh, good. When the charges were brought, I have two two part question. When the charges were brought against the Mughals, was it always uh, treason or opposing the government, or did they sometimes just make up something completely unrelated? And the second part of the question is, when they um, were released from prison, did any of them go back into uh, resistance against the communist regime? The first question, um, very shortly um, after the Communist um, Party uh, got into power, they established new laws. One of them was a law under which uh, you could be sentenced to life sentence labor camps for betrayal of one's nation or people's nation. Under that law, um, all these people, men and women, were uh, sentenced to these camps. So um, that was the official legal uh, formulation. Um, well, it was very broad, and uh, in the beginning, the very first ones, as I said, that were arrested were uh, members of the party themselves. Uh, many of them uh, were from Second World War resistance, survivors of camps. Uh, interestingly, Eight of them were Jewish origins, with very anti-Semitic undertone, very strong. Um, and uh, as time went on, just about anybody could have been arrested for anything, in other words, and the law was used to just just take that right to do that to people. So just like Solzhenitsyn is writing about gulags in Russia, um, that was a Czech version of gulags in a sense that first it was resisting people, politically resisting, then it was people who didn't want to give up to economic reforms, so owners of the businesses, companies, uh, didn't want to nationalize. People who owned land, farmers, whose uh, wells were poisoned, land was taken away from them, some of them suicide because they were very proud. Some of them were to jails. Uh, one of the women prisoners in my book says, you know, on, on, the, on the trial, uh, we were all marked as a betrayers of and political leaders and resistance, political resistance. But when I was in a prison, I met uh, simple women, working women, uh, women from farms, factories. Um, so... In the end, uh, anybody was arrested who was uncomfortable to the regime. Um, but the regime did establish um, a law under which they could do that. What was the, the, the name of that law? Uh, it was, they, they call it paragraph, would it be paragraph K23? 
and then there was a K KDU-1 and KDU-5 as well, which became a symbol of Mughals. They had a little pin with this K-2-1, uh, and that was another identification that they had. Um, well, they made their party after the law, right? Right. And did any of them, he, his second question, did any of them rejoin the resistance when they got out? In the 60s, uh, there was a movement that was led by this man, Franta. They already planned during the imprisonment that when they get out, they will organize, uh, what they will organize. They will organize party, they will political party, um, resistant movement party, and part of their program was reconciliation. Um, and also spreading the information about what happened to them. So that happened in 68. Um, in, after the revolution in 18, as I said, 89, they, uh, there was not really reason for political resistance in that sense. They were, however, in 70s and 80s meeting secretly. So there were secret meetings that was all done underground. Um, many of them also emigrated after, in that period of before 68 or right after 68. So, for example, Canada has a huge, at that point in 60s, if people emigrated, it was mostly, chances was to go to Canada or Australia. So you will find that there's a huge community of, or was a huge community of political prisoners living in Australia or Canada. Some in U.S., but not at that point so much. And they and had a hard time getting jobs, didn't they, when they, they came out of the camps? Well, they... Most of them, I should say all of them, couldn't really join regular work for, workforce. They only were allowed to uh, have a jobs that were either night shifts or working not with people in direct contact. So uh, post office, for example, was a luxury job. They couldn't. So some of them were doing tram drive. They were tram drivers or subway drivers, uh, cleaning, heating. It was just uh, kind of a jobs that... Uh, immigrants do in this country. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyone else have a question, sir? Uh, some of these people that were judged for something, uh, they, were they some of those that were really forced to admit something completely wrong so that government had example to show to our people, right. like one of the compatriots? We were here in the school, <coughs> uh, students, and now you will hear uh, whoever was all good before, last week still good. We will prove to you that we discovered an agent. It was all constructive joke to invent answers that he would admit he did. And they were forced under many psychological you know, techniques to admit. So people were tortured before trials or during interrogations, before they were sentenced to labor camps. And, uh, and uh, some of them were tortured to the point where it was physically painful that they would sign paper of betrayal. Uh, they would um, admit things they didn't do. Uh, some did, some didn't. Uh, we, I remember when I was interviewing, typically when it got to that point, uh, of discussing interrogations, uh, specifically torture, uh, there was a silence. And, um, and I never heard from anybody throughout all the interviews, I, sound, I, I signed what I didn't do. People would either 
not or they will be silent. So there was a certain silence that I couldn't get through and I didn't push. Uh, not being journalist, I didn't push. So. Anyone else have a question? No? Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Yana. Thank you very much. <laughs>